0: Today's podcast is brought to you by tape a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at tape and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. tape lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's the perfect tool for recording phone interviews. tape keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over three million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tape A Call on a day to day basis. Visit Tape A Call dot com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tape A Call at an exclusive twenty percent off discount by visiting Tape dot com slash podcast
1: you can actually reach a point where you create something that's so visually intricate that it almost detracts from the story and people are focusing more on the the colours and shapes of your visualisation than the story itself. I, th- I think a lot of what people might term infographics perhaps suffer from that, so things that have been so painstakingly designed and with so much attention on the design rather than what story they're telling, that the reader is actually simply looking at the shapes and colors rather than thinking about the story so that's where i think the approach of like i say my colleague alan smith comes in which is sure you want to design something beautiful but you then want to start almost removing visual elements until you've distilled the story to its most simple form so i think i think if you go with that approach then you can add an enormous amount of value
0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital news and the people who are making it. Today, we're focusing on how to use data journalism to enhance your storytelling. I'm talking with John Byrne Murdoch via Skype. He's a data journalist with the Financial Times in London. He's also a visiting lecturer with City
1: University London. How are you doing, John? I'm great, thanks. And yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Longtime listener, so great to be. Well, cool. Great. Well, um I'm glad that you're you're
0: here, and, I, and I'm really interested to talk about data visualization and uh, being a data journalist. So to sort of get a start us, started, let's start off with a basic question. How did you become a data journalist?
1: So yeah, good place to start chronologically. Um I'm yeah, it's a bit of a roundabout route as far as I'm concerned. So I guess my first foray into journalism came as a student when I started writing for the student newspaper in my final year. As uh, as an undergraduate, but even then, it wasn't it wasn't with a view to necessarily do data journalism. I don't I don't know if I'd even uh, come across the the term back then. So it was just general journalism that I was interested in. Quite quickly realized that I was enjoying that, and so started applying for work experience at various places here in the UK. And it just so happened that the uh, first people to get back to me in that regard was the. The Guardian newspaper, um, based here in London, and they were looking for a few people to come and work with them following the London riots uh, in 2011. And it turned out that that meant we were embedded with the Guardian's data team, which was run by Simon Rogers at the time, who since went on to places like Twitter and Google. And I quickly realised that this combination of finding and telling stories that that journalism is, um, the combination of that with... The quantitative aspect of it was something that I seem to have fallen into at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way in terms of my background. So my my undergraduate degree had been in geography or specialising in climate science, and I come from quite a numerate family, as it were. My dad is a is a maths teacher, and my brother works in finance, that kind of thing. So this idea of combining my passion for journalism with relatively speaking at least some numerate skills it was kind of a match made in heaven so yeah i've really gone on from there obviously spent a couple of years on the guardians data team and then came into the financial times where i am today
0: so let me ask you a quick question about uh, the Guardian before we get move, move on. Now, they've they've been gotten a lot of credit for breaking s- some ground in uh, the way they cover the news, especially in, in, in dealing with data. You described it as sort of a data team. What, what was their sort of approach to stories? Did the, you know was it something that, that everybody was sort of involved in and sharing sort of skills, or was it something more well, much different?
1: Um, it was it was an interesting one. It was a fantastic team. It was a small unit. So at the time I, I was there, there were typically sort of maybe about three or four people on the team, depending on where you drew that line. So there was the data editor who, again, for most of the time was Simon Rogers, but subsequently uh, James Bull. There were then sort of two or three of us on any given day, just as data journalists. And as a team, it was, it was fairly fast-paced, so we'd be very much following the news agenda, but bringing uh, numbers, um, charts, and that kind of thing to the table. And typically, yeah, sort of putting out as a unit sort of three or four pieces on a typical day. So that meant you obviously had to be right on top of the news agenda because when you're trying to do data journalism, trying to tell stories with numbers, um, it's even more important that you're you, you can almost predict what direction the news agenda is going to go in because you're going to have to spend some time finding and collecting data, cleaning it, analyzing it and presenting it. So if you want to do that on a dead on a, that kind of schedule, that kind of tight deadline, then, yeah, there's, you need to be almost second guessing what, you know, what silly politician is going to say what next, um, that kind of thing. So. So, yeah, a small team. I'm a very, very tightly knit team and, yeah, at a sort of nice, fast-paced environment.
0: So what differentiates a data journalist from a regular journalist?
1: Um, it's, it's a really good question. And I think one way, well, one, one answer is that um, perhaps less than people think. And I certainly think that going forwards, we may in five years uh, or so find that a lot of people who today would perhaps define themselves as data journalists are simply digital journalists, people who tell stories and happen to use various tools along the way. If if I were to make that distinction today, I, th- I think a data journalist is essentially, you've kind of got a sort of back-end data journalist or a front-end data journalist or, or somewhere between the two. And what, what I mean by that is a back-end data journalist, as it were, is someone who is is using a technical knowledge of some kind of specialist area. So numerate analysis, um, image analysis, that kind of thing. They're using some kind of sp- special knowledge there to find stories in data. And when I say data, I mean text, numbers, images, sounds, that kind of thing. It's not not as simple as spreadsheets only. So that's that's for me sort of the, the back-end journalist who uses data to find stories. A front-end data journalist is someone who is, they're finding stories from somewhere, whether it's in that kind of information or not but they're then using the data to tell the stories so through perhaps some visuals through interactive storytelling perhaps just through the way they combine audio visual and that kind of kind of production in the front and and obviously you get some who are a combination of the two so if you look at those two distinctions then I think I think the sort of technical specialists in terms of finding stories that is a role for me that will remain relatively specialist and distinct and I expect will still exist in five years. So people who are finding data in ways that the average journalist in the newsroom wouldn't have the time or inclination to do. But perhaps that concept of the front end data journalist, someone who's using data to present stories, that's something that for me might, in a good way, I think, um, start to blend, blend into the mainstream and we'll have more and more people using visuals, using numbers, to present. So so yeah, I think there is a distinction, but I imagine it's something that will become more blurred as time goes on.
0: So sort of build on your answer there, you know, are you gen- typically generating most of your stories or are you sort of helping other reporters tell their story?
1: Um, so our team is, it's probably not quite a 50-50 split. I would say slightly more than half of our output comes from within the remainder. So maybe sort of 60-40, the remainder is the results of collaborating with reporters, correspondents, or with a whole a whole desk, and I think that's it's very good that that's the way things happen. That things are going at the moment because I think for quite a while, at least at least in the UK, there was what someone whose name escapes me, someone termed it as a a delicatessen kind of approach when it came to to data nice. and particularly visual journalism. In that, you had these very creative, very technical specialists in your newsroom, but they were often simply Asked to, you know, put a chart on this story, um, add a map to this one, that kind of thing. So I think we at the Financial Times have gone in the same direction as a lot of places in terms of allowing those specialists, those technical people to have a a much more uh, heavily involved part in the story generation and development phase. So, yeah, a lot of most of the stuff we do, either the entire story or at least significant parts of the idea and its presentation are very much generated from within the team.
0: So what's, a you know, the f- Financial Times is, is obviously you've got a, you know, a business um, money focus. Uh, you, what's a typical data visualization project that you guys do?
1: I mean, there's a, there's a f- all sorts really that we do, which is one of the nice things about this kind of role. So as you say, the Financial Times is, of course, as its name suggests, heavily focused on, on finance, the economy and business. But I think the, there's also a big picture approach here, which is that the FT is looking at, you know, what are the major, major sort of forces going on in the at, at play in the world, which are, you know, the kind of things that, mat- of course, matter to people who are interested in finance and business because because of how much impact they have on the world. So that's why we're still covering things like climate change very heavily. We're doing a lot of work on ISIS and that kind of thing. We have a fantastic world affairs team who are all over that and, and similar stories. So... Yes, there's a, the, the, the bottom line is that our readers, of course, gen, generally from the financial, from the business world, but I th- think, yeah, they, they still care about the bigger picture, of course, because it you know sort of ISIS, ISIS's activities might dictate um, moves in the oil market and that kind of thing, for example. So a typical a typical piece for us, I mean it will be relatively numbers heavy quite often. So I mean, as perhaps that sounds too obvious, but visual journalism, data journalism can take a lot of forms. But we produce a lot of charts at the Financial Times, a lot of dashboards. So a really big, a big project that I wasn't partic- um, individually involved in, but the team was involved in recently was creating an economic dashboard for the UK and subsequently one for the US, which is essentially the idea is that this is a one stop shop where you as an interested party can uh, come to the website, come to the page, and whenever you uh, get there, all the data that appears, uh, that is presented to you is um, right up to date. So it gives you a snapshot uh, across different sectors, different topics of what's going on in the uh, economy of your country of choice. And this is actually um, a project that, to some level, has been in the pipeline for several years. So through several iterations of our team, people had wanted to produce something like this. And it was earlier this year that the UK one finally, um, we, we had the capabilities, the resources um, to, to produce. And the great thing is that although that one took a while to make, the US economic dashboard was um, up and running within almost a week because of this idea that you can create templates, which is then reusable. And the reception of both of those uh, um, dashboards was incredibly good. So a lot of people um, very generously have said that they're actually arguably better than the equivalents provided by national stati- the various national statistical bodies. So that, I guess, would be your sort of um, trademark FTP. So visualizing economic data in order to inform our readers on decisions they might be making, conversations they might be having, that kind of thing. Um, But doing it in a, in a very, very clear, very, very visually pleasing um, kind of way. And again, adding in that element of, of timelessness as well. So as I say, this one is up to date whenever you see it. So yeah, I guess if there are two, two particular themes to projects that we would be involved in, it's informing the readership and presenting things in a, in a very clear, high production value kind of way.
0: And that's something nice about digital journalism, where you can build a dashboard like this and that's the information is going to be constantly updating. So it's not so much through writing a story. You're creating a resource for your readers that they can keep going back to. And you know that, of course, helps your traffic and the interest in your website.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But I think it's worth noting as well that there are actually elements of that economic dashboard that are editable as well. So the idea is that whenever you visit the page, of course... The charts are kept up to date through a completely automated process, but there are little paragraphs of text dotted around the page which we can actually edit to make sure that they are telling a story, they are they are relevant to the current news agenda, the political debate, that kind of thing. So so even even when we are making resources like that, I think ideally we like to keep them keep an element of narrative there as well. So so they are tools, but there's also still something to draw you in and keep you focused on the page.
0: And that's great because the more data you get from that, you can create sort of sidebar stories to that that oh, that we've noticed this trend in this the, that's shown up over a period of months or whatever. and then that's something you can you know explain out to your to readers or draw to their attention to that you know why this is happening and, and do reporting around that to sort of build on the data that that's coming in.
1: Exactly, yeah. The, so the the spreadsheet, the, the Google sheet that those dashboards actually run off um, includes sections where any any reporter or desk editor can actually dip in and add, link, add relevant links to their stories. So when you're looking at the industrial output for um, the US, for example, a reporter who files a related story can go in and add a link to that, to the spreadsheet that is driving that graphic. So there's always going to be something on there. That as well as, as, as well as the timeless data, there's always something on there that gives you, gives you somewhere else to go and read more.
0: Now, I, you sent me a number of links uh, before our conversation of uh, projects that you had worked on, but also some of the projects that your colleagues had worked on. And there were a couple that I really, really liked that I wanted to talk to you about. The first one was an elections results explained. I guess this was a recent election. And what I liked about it was, and, and I'll have the link with this on, on the website, is that it's almost kind of like presented like a weather report. It's a video with a broadcaster, almost like a weatherman, next to a, a, a map of the United Kingdom, and he's describing the different districts, what the vote turnout was, what the implications were. And as he's speaking, the the graphics behind it are, are changing. I assume that your involvement is that you did the graphics for that.
1: Yeah, that was that was a really really fun one to work on. So so we were we already knew we were going to have this data. Being fed in automatically, and we were producing various other bits and pieces around this. So you'll have seen there was also a a sort of a second treatment of this piece, as it were, which which went out as a interactive graphic for people to go through on on their mobiles or on their computers. But this one was great. So we decided very early on that we would, as an experiment, we would collaborate. We, being the interactive team, would collaborate with the video team. Yeah, with the idea of doing this weather forecast kind of approach so the the presenter as it were in there is a guy called Kieran Stacey who at the time was our political one of our political correspondents and the thinking behind this was that as, as well as obviously it being just generally a good idea was that because this data was being fed in live and the the graphics were created in such a way that whenever they were, they were generated on the screen behind him, they would be up to date. The idea was that there would, there would of course, be a big rush on the day to get things out as quickly as possible. And it wouldn't be possible to, well, it would be a lot slower to try and create those kind of election explained style graphics from scratch. Whereas if we had things teed up in advance and were able to put in dummy data sets and say, here's how it would work, that gave us a really interesting opportunity here. So there were a lot of rehearsals over the the days and weeks beforehand where we were experimenting with different color schemes for starters just to get that right and make sure it would would display properly on on the screen and then yeah putting in different data sets to to demo different scenarios that we thought might happen and just getting getting the the sort of links between what the presenter was doing and what was happening on the screen getting that right because the timing was was very sensitive in that one uh, if the presenter sort of paused for a second, the the person in control of the visualization might misinterpret that as them wanting to move on to the next stage. So th- there was a lot of a lot of rehearsals involved to, to make sure we got that right. But yeah, I, th- I think I think the result was good, and we were certainly very happy with it. I thought it was a very successful
0: presentation and a different approach to how. We can, you know, communicate that that information in different platforms. You, you incorporating it into a video as an explainer, as opposed to, you know, I think you said that there was an accompanying uh, piece of, uh, you know, visualization where people could interact with. Maybe somebody just has it on their phone, and, they, and if they just they just they could want to sit on a on, on a train and watch a video, um, they can get all get get the uh, uh, the presenter, you know, explaining each results and the significance of each. And then sort of backing that up with the data visual, visualization, I thought that made a really nice package. But then the other one that I really liked was uh, it was racing lifts or elevators as we call them in the U.S. Could you sort of describe that story and sort of the origin of it?
1: Sure. So that's that's another one that it was really great to be involved with. That's one that very much originated actually with the with the reporter and the desk in question. So. It was kind of f- fortunate timing, really. So I had I had just been sort of perhaps the week beforehand experimenting with the animation techniques that we ended up using in in that piece, and uh, someone from our company's team um, came over to us a couple of days later, just by chance, and said, "So and so, Tanya Pauli in this question, in in this case, is is writing a piece about the the need for." bigger and better and faster elevators as, as buildings get taller. And so the the reporter from the, the same desk as her, he had discovered that there was this website online which included data on the heights of all these buildings but also included data on the elevators that run up and down them, including the maximum speeds and the height of the lift shaft and that kind of stuff. And I think he, being someone who is quite numerate himself, spotted spotted straight away that there was an opportunity to use that structured information on the website to do something quite interesting with. So um, he got in touch with the uh, maintainers of that site and they handed over the information. So we had a list of buildings and their heights and the speeds of the elevators. So we then collaborated and quite quickly came up with this idea that we would animate the elevators on the page as you would see them uh, in real life as it were if you were sort of standing at a certain distance and the buildings were transparent and yeah quite quickly we we settled on this idea of having them going up and down sort of to scale but as real time and having those little clocks and counters on the page telling you how many round trips they'd done and yeah it was it was a, it was another one that was really really well received it was very n- nice to be part of that and we actually ended up um, the social media time. Uh, social media team decided it would be quite fun to run a little competition with the readers. <laughs> so um, suggested that readers should leave the page open and see how many round trips the different elevators could make. Uh, and I think the the first reply to that in the comment thread was someone uh, very frustrated that they seconds earlier had closed the tab and now had to start again. But yeah, it was it was a very fun one to make and again really nice to get a a very positive reception. And yeah, just great to to take what was certainly an interesting but perhaps perhaps a dry, one of the more dry topics that we covered, just the, you know, the elevator industry. I don't think anyone would say that they're a, they're particularly into that industry unless they work in it. So to take something like that and turn it into something that anyone could be interested in, I think was It's it's kind of what we always aim for and that we've got it particularly right on that occasion.
0: Yeah, I I really liked the, uh, for lack of a better word, the humor of it, the lightness of it, the fact that it was a very creative demonstration of something that that for a certain industry and for a certain, I guess, economic point of view is kind of an important story. Because if you go into the story, then the story is a lot about, uh, you know, sort of this dramatic Uh, economic competition be going with different countries about who can build the biggest building and then the practical engineering concerns of well how do you make a you know how fast does the elevator have to be if you're going to make a building so so high and and just having those different buildings next to each other and seeing them go in different ways it's it's a way of you viewing that story in a different way that I don't think certainly you couldn't do in print but but you couldn't do in a lot of other ways but and be as successful as this was I thought
1: yeah I mean it, and it's, it's very nice to hear you say that and, and I think that matches with with what we thought when we evaluated it. But yeah, I think as I say, just we aim for that all the time. Sometimes we nail it, sometimes we're close, and, and this was one where we, I think we really got it spot on.
0: Yeah, and, and some of the other links you sent me were of uh, some of the colleagues of, uh, that you have at uh, the Financial Times. One of them is was a story about inside ISIS Inc. Uh, or incorporated the journey of a barrel of oil, which was kind of maps describing uh, the movement of oil in Syria and Iraq. What what is it that you thought worked really well with that uh, that type of story, or with the visualization for that story?
1: I, mean, I think there are there are some parallels you can almost draw with the elevators one in that this was about taking taking a story which is very important, and this one obviously being a very interesting story in the first place, but using the way it was presented to really to make it. Much more, much more compelling, and give it a, give it, given a much clearer narrative. so this one, um, my understanding of it was that the the starting point here was a conversation between Erica Solomon, the Middle East correspondent there and and Robin Kwong, my colleague on the interactive team um and I think they both essentially realized that they had there was a story here that a story that was all that was always going to be told it was it was just going to be treated in a normal way, but I think they realized by combining. Uh, Erica's knowledge of what was going on on the ground and and the importance of this this story with Robin's knowledge as as an expert on different ways to present um, present information I, I think that the two of them realized that this was a chance to do something really striking and to take what as I say what would otherwise have been a good a perfectly good story but but something that could easily get lost in in the number of, of stories that come out on this and to turn it into much more of a showpiece. And the third name on, on the byline there, Steve Bernard, is our digital design editor and particularly is a expert in uh, in cartography and digital mapping. And so I think that one of the reasons this was so successful is that the three of them were so closely communicating with one another so closely and the back and forth, I mean, Robin and Steve, who are both based in with me in London, there was... You know, just flitting from desk to desk back and forth uh, for a few days. And I think when you see something like that, it really shows how heavily invested they are that these these people are in in this project. And I think you really see the results here. So every every map, every visual on on the page there, pretty much every pixel on that page was was designed for this story. So I mean I spoke earlier with the dashboards about how templating can save time. And of course there are significant elements of this piece that could be used in other situations. But having said that, all sorts of things on this piece were designed, like I say, right down to the pixel, right down to the individual colour that a certain word should be in word, designed very much for this story. So I think you can really see that in terms of the appearance. And similarly just in in the structure of the narrative, again, Robin worked very, very close with Erica on that. And there was there was this mutual decision that this should be treated as as a as a very fluid narrative where you really want to keep reading through and want to know why uh, the various threads of the story are important and where the next piece leads and i think again the the way it was written and the way it was presented really dovetail very nicely to to again bring readers through the story almost without them realizing that they're continuing through it and and yeah to uh, similarly to to use the strength of the visuals to draw people in who perhaps might never even have stumbled across the piece in the first place.
0: Yeah, the, the maps work incredibly well with that. And people forget, you know, we, we get on this whole thing, talking about digital journalism, and you forget that maps have been around a very long time, and, and they can be used to tell stories, very powerful stories. But now one of the things you, you sort of mentioned, I want to go back to about about templates and, and kind of the importance of, of, of that and as we develop these different ways and means of, of storytelling, you know, building something, you know, once for a particular project, but building it in a way maybe that can be repurposed for some other project. Is that something that you guys do a lot of? And I say guys, because there might be women there as well, but. Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're kind of both touching on what I think is a core issue here, which is that a, a purely bespoke story is is probably not the best way to do things but equally i think going too far down the templating road uh, roads can lead to things getting fairly mundane so i think this it's this middle ground of creating pieces where there are there are specific elements whether it's techniques that you've used or whether it's actual physical snippets of of code that you can reuse elsewhere you you do want to feel that the time you're investing on that story isn't only going on that story so you want to have things that you can do again. But at, but at the same time, I think, as we see with this Isis Oil piece, the amount of, of this that was absolutely bespoke really, really helps, I think. I, I mean, if we'd use some kind of automatic tool to generate the maps here, we could have made them look very nice. But it would have been difficult to to get them to fit as seamlessly into the narrative if they hadn't been designed Piece by piece to fit in at certain points of the story, and I think that's one thing that we, as a, as the interactive team and and the whole visual output team at the Financial Times, one thing we increasingly uh, clear on is that this idea that a visu- visual, visual journalism, visual elements are just as important to a story as the words, the paragraphs that appear there, and they shouldn't be treated as something that a reporter or editor requests at the end as, a, as an add-on but the reporter should be thinking right from the the first time they think ah oh, I've got an idea for the story here they should be thinking about how they can weave in visuals and audio into its presentation and that's a message that's being communicated very well here um, from some of my colleagues and from the from the top down with our idea of text plus journalism and yeah I, th- I guess that's I think one of the things that it's we certainly have found is most conducive to doing to doing very good data and visual journalism, it's to think about the data that you're going to use and the way you're going to present it right from the very, very off. So
0: I like this this sort of craftsmanship approach as opposed to a mechanistic approach. That's it's just my interpretation of it. But let's talk a little bit about your uh, you, your sort of background and and just sort of the the toolbox that a that a data journalist needs. Where we're at kind of now in journalism. If somebody wants to come into this field, what type of skill sets do you think work best?
1: That's a really good question. And I think there are different answers depending on what kind of, what um, avenue of data journalism someone would want to pursue in particular. I mean, I, I think one, as nice as it is to say, ah, oh, you don't have to be good at numbers to be a data journalist. I do think there's a certain level of numeracy that is an enormous help. So whether whether you're going to be uh, doing any kind of in-depth statistical analysis or not, I think just being able to um, look for stories in spreadsheets or use use spreadsheets, use numbers to to generate visual elements. I think that's half of the. You're halfway there when you can do that, really. Um, this idea of um, that you can use a number to to indicate what shape, or size, or color something should be in a graphic. I think just that. That way of thinking in terms of structured data is important. So, so yeah, I think I think that's that's going to be a sort of base mindset that will at least get you kind of kind of like I found at the start without knowing what data journalism is. But being someone who was used to thinking about things quantitatively, I think that was a one important part. And then in, in terms of specific skills, um, I mean, there's this age-old question of should journalists uh, learn to code? Should all journalists code? And I certainly think there are loads of data journalists out there who don't do any code. They, I mean, they they work in spreadsheets, that kind of thing. But I don't think coding is a is necessarily a requirement. If you want to go down the sort of interactive design and visualization route, then of course, that's going to be a core part of what you do later on. But I don't think, again, a lack of that knowledge, certainly when you start out is is an issue. In terms of specific tools, I think there are still a couple of schools of thought in terms of whether people should be using out-of-the-box software or whether it should all be uh, making use of open-source code, so JavaScript libraries and that kind of stuff. Um, when I was at the, at the on the Guardian's data blog, we tended to do more of the former. Again, because things were very fast-paced, as I as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't really viable to be creating uh, interactive projects on the same day as the news was breaking. So we used. Tools such as Tableau software for visualizations, we used a lot of um, Google charts and, and basic spreadsheets and that kind of thing. But nowadays, at, in my current role at the Financial Times, it's pretty much all programming language based. So I, I my own toolkit, as it were, is I use a lot of the statistical language R. To scrape data from websites to clean that to analyze it and a huge advantage of that for me over over basic spreadsheets and tools like microsoft excel is that there's a coming back to the idea of templating in terms of the back end to your journalism i think you should template as much as you possibly can so i can write little functions and scripts which whenever i want to do a particular story or use a particular data set i pretty much just have to double click something and it will do all the steps for me or I can leave something running overnight. Whereas if you're using spreadsheets, you've got to remember what did I do next? Which column did I sort by what? What did I type in here to calculate this number? So in t- back-end automation, again, I think is a, is a huge thing that will save you an enormous amount of time and give you more time to focus on the story. So for me, that that comes about through using R. And then on in terms of how you present Um, that information again there are there's a wealth of free charting tools that just sort of have a click and drag interface out there which is obviously going to be the way to do things for most people who are just getting into data journalism but I think the freedom and the creative the creative freedom that you get when you start producing data visualizations through code Um, so JavaScript libraries such as D3 uh, I, I think they also open open doors in terms of ways of, of telling stories visually that you you would never even have envisaged. So, if you're restricted to doing everything as a bar chart or a line chart, I mean, <laughs> some people would say that's that's all you need. I think some data visualization purists might say that. But when you can start doing things like we see with the maps here in the ITIS piece or the elevators, there's no tool that um, gives you that out of the box. So I think certainly for me, but again there are all sorts of different types of data journalists but for me as someone who's sort of 50 50 data journalist visual journalist using code at the back end and the front end i think has has opened a huge amount of opportunities to me and and again saved me a lot of time as well And the two very much go hand in hand
0: do you come from a uh, visual background from a design background
1: at all Uh, i mean not really to be honest i i mean i've always been someone who's been quite creative i when I think back to my school days, I was always sketching something when I, in the in the minutes between sort of exercises in class and that kind of thing. But no, my I mean my my design knowledge has kind of been acquired on the job. We've got some absolutely incredible visual journalists here at Financial Times, people who are experts in in like I say Steve in in mapping, people who are know more about um, colours and where you shouldn't shouldn't use different combinations than I could ever know. Uh, we recently brought in someone from the the UK's National Statistics Office, a guy called Alan Smith, who is an absolute genius when it comes to um, just ways to to tell a story visually in a very concise way. So, where I certainly until he came along, I I would always have had the temptation to to maybe go a bit too far in the in the creativity and the you know, add a few more lines to this chart or a few more dots to this one to add some more detail. But Alan is a real expert in cutting away really. Uh, So completely the opposite until, until you're telling a story visually in the the clearest and simplest way possible. So, so yeah, my, in terms of my data visualization knowledge, that's very much come from those around me. And I think I've been very lucky to be, to work at organizations where there have been some incredibly talented people and people also who will take the time to show you different ways of doing things
0: so when when somebody has an assignment or somebody has a set of data or something what is the the type of thing that sort of gets you charged that that makes you want to go yeah i want to do this i want to tell this type of story
1: i think part of it is is um, obviously being engaged in the story so so having enough knowledge of the subject matter whether you whether that was pre-existing or whether the reporter has been able to communicate that to you I think as soon as you know the message you're trying to tell, things get a lot easier. So often the the most time-consuming stage of any of any data journalism project is the stage when you're figuring out what's the story I'm trying to tell here and what does that therefore mean in terms of the data I'm going to need. Um, it's, it can be incredibly frustrating when you spend, spend a while compiling a data set and then you realize it doesn't actually answer the question that you set out to ask. So I think... The moment that the penny drops and you you can completely see the story that you're trying to tell through data or through visuals, I think that allows you to just leap into it. So I, I think it's not a coincidence that I've worked on a couple of climate change related pieces since I've been at the FT, because that was what my undergraduate was in. And so I can maybe grasp the bigger picture and, and the way we could present something more quickly than someone else might. And just as someone else might be doing a story on, on ISIS, as we see here, or or on uh, something to do with, I don't know, sort of the, uh, the oil market, and they might have more background knowledge to jump into it. So I think part of it is just grasping grasping the story. Um, and yeah, I think the other side is knowing that there are some interesting ways you can present something visually. So again, the, the elevators piece was, was really sort of the perfect scenario in that sense, when you have a, a, a great idea sort of out of left field of how you can present something. So yeah, the, the knowledge that, the knowledge that you, you grasp the story sufficiently to start thinking more creatively I think is the first step. And then when you think, oh, there's a, there's a really striking way that we can, we can present this visually or some of my colleagues, how they can add in some audio, that kind of thing. I think those are the two steps.
0: Have you ever come across something that, that seems so dry to you that, that you never thought that it would be something that you'd be able to successfully present and then you
1: sort of surprised yourself that you did? Um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, there, there are definitely, I can definitely sort of say there are some projects where straight away, you know what you want to do and there are others where you kind of think, I'm not really sure what we're going to do with this data set. But, um, I mean, there was one, one, I'm just trying to think where we were looking at, uh, it was quite a simple one, just looking at the gender disparity in jobs, uh, at fund management. Companies, uh, well, uh, hedge funds, and we we had some figures on uh, different funds and the percentage of their overall workforce that was male and female, and then the percentage of their senior positions that were. And we were thinking of ways to visualize it, and we came up with quite a nice idea in the end, which was what you might call sort of a lollipop chart. So that in, instead of doing a simple bar chart of sort of this is the percentage of the workforce that were female, and this is the percentage that were male, we sort of did a circle for the uh, percentage that were female of the senior staff and then a line down to the circle that represented the percentage that were male staff. So you were still getting the same message across, but instead of um, a bar chart which might otherwise have got lost in a sea of charts that you would see on Twitter, we did something a little bit more visually striking and that really made it clearer that we were focusing on that gap between the proportion of women in the senior roles and the junior roles.
0: When doing these types of data, these data visualizations, uh, the reaction that you get from your audience, do you do you feel that they're sort of affected in a different way by having the information presented this way? Do they get a greater understanding of what's going on? Do you think
1: it's interesting? I I mean, in general terms, I think absolutely they do. I I think the the old aphorism that a picture is worth a thousand words. I think that definitely does apply in terms of presenting journalism visually and. Even more so when you start looking at animation. I mean, if if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a, an animation that involves several pictures can can be can tell an entire story. But but at the same time, I do think you have to really think about the the story that you're trying to tell. I mean, you you can actually reach a point where you create something that's so visually intricate that it almost detracts from the story, and people are focusing more on the the colors and shapes of your visualization than the story itself i th- i think a lot of what people might term infographics perhaps suffer from that so things that have been so painstakingly designed and with so much attention on the design rather than what story they're telling that the reader is actually simply looking at the shapes and colors rather than thinking about the story so that's where i think the approach of like i say my colleague alan smith comes in which is sure, you want to design something beautiful, but you then want to start almost removing visual elements until you've distilled the story to its most simple form. So I I think if you go with that approach, then you can add an enormous amount of value. And again, I think when you start using animations as well, you can get to a point where you can almost tell an entire story in a sort of 20 or 30 second animation that could go straight out on social media or something like that.
0: So sort of striking that balance of, uh, you know, simplicity sometimes is your best guide or at least becoming learning to become how to edit yourself I guess
1: is yeah absolutely I I think there's an element when you're when you're learning new skills as as you kind of always are as a data or visual journalist there's always a temptation to to add in this new thing that you learned or that you saw elsewhere and for yourself that can be great and you can think oh yeah we tried out this new technique and it was really successful but often as I say you might have have gone over the peak as it were in terms of the clarity of what you're trying to present so i think yes you want to be creative yes you want to 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 design something that draws people in who might otherwise not have clicked through but as i say it's also about distilling things down to a point where you give the reader the the biggest chance possible of coming away with their questions answered and with no sort of further questions arising from the way that you visualize something
0: well, this, this has been fascinating, and I real, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I think I could talk to you in about another hour about all this, this design stuff, but I don't, I don't want to let you go. Is there anything that you've been working on that you want to let people know about before we go?
1: Nothing in particular, to be honest. I mean, we've we've always got interesting projects coming out. There'll, there will be more parts of that ISIS, Inside ISIS Inc. There are more parts in that series to come, which, again, my colleagues Robin and Steve are working on, so I'd Definitely suggest people should keep an eye out for those. We've got some bits of work coming up on Britain and its place in Europe and, and whether decisions are going to go in certain ways. So, yeah, I mean, I would say just keep an eye on the FT's Twitter feeds because, again, we're, we've we been doing some very interesting experiments in animations that are specifically tailored for sharing on, on social media as well where we're animating charts and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, keep an eye out and hopefully, hopefully you'll like what you see. You've been listening to
0: It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. This week's podcast was produced by Michael O'Connell, Amber Healy, and Nicole Ogrisco. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also subscribe to It's All Journalism on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spreaker. Today's podcast is brought to you by tape a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at tape and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. tape lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's a perfect tool for recording phone interviews. tape keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over three million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tape A Call on a day to day basis. Visit Tape A Call dot com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tape A Call at an exclusive twenty percent off discount by visiting Tape dot com slash podcast. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. It's All Journalism is also a member of the DC Podcasters community. Look for us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.